Um, I hope you guys got a good sleep if this is your first talk of the day. Not going to look at anyone. Um, for our uh, next talk, we're going to be discussing S risks. Um, effective altruists focused on shaping the far future face a choice between different types of interventions. Of these, efforts to reduce the risk of human extinction have received the most attention so far. In this uh, next talk, Max Daniel will, have, will make the case that we want to complement such work with interventions aimed at preventing very undesirable futures, or S-risks, and that this provides a reason for, among the sources of existential risks identified so far, focusing on artificial intelligence risk. Max is the executive director of the Foundational Research Institute, an AI research group focused on preventing futures that would be even worse than extinction. Before learning about effective altruism, he pursued his interests in science and altruism separately, doing research in pure mathematics and serving as a board member of an international aid NGO. Without further ado, please welcome Max to the stage. Yes, so thanks, Roxanne, for the introduction. Uh, thanks for inviting me. And of course, uh, thanks to you for being here. I'm going to talk about risks of large-scale severe suffering in the far future, or S-risks. And to illustrate what S-risks are about, I'd like to start with a fictional story from the British TV series Black Mirror, which some of you may have seen. So in this fictional scenario, it's possible to upload human minds into virtual environments. In this way, sentient beings can effectively be stored and run on very small computing devices, such as the wide egg-shaped gadget you can see on the screen here. Behind the computing device, you can see Matt. Matt's job is to sell those virtual humans as virtual assistants. And because this isn't a job description that's particularly appealing to everyone, part of Matt's job is to convince these human uploads to actually comply with the requests of their human owners. And so in this instance, human upload Greta, which you can see here, is unwilling to do this. She's not thrilled with the prospect of serving for the rest of her life as a virtual assistant. In order to break her will, in order to make her comply, Matt increases the rate at which time passes for Greta. So while Matt only needs to wait for a few seconds, during that time, Greta effectively endures many months of solitary confinement. So I hope you agree that this would be an undesirable scenario. And now, fortunately, of course, this particular scenario is quite unlikely to be realized, right? So for any particular scenario we can imagine to unfold, it's pretty unlikely that it will be realized in precisely this form. So that's not the point here. However, I'll argue that there, in fact, is a broad range of scenarios, that we face risks of scenarios that are in some ways like this scenario or even worse. And I'll call these risks S-risks. I'll first explain what these S-risks are, contrasting them with the more familiar existential risks or X-risks. And then in the second part of the talk, I'll talk a bit about why, as effective altruists, we may want to prevent those S-risks and how we could do this. 
So the way I'd like to introduce them, S risks will be a subclass of the more familiar existential risks. As you may recall, these have been defined by Nick Bostrom as risks where an adverse outcome would either completely annihilate Earth-originating intelligent life or at least permanently and drastically curtail its potential. Bostrom also suggested in one of his major publications on existential risk that one way to understand how these risks differ from other kinds of risks is to look at how bad this adverse outcome would be along two dimensions. And these dimensions are the scope and the severity of the adverse outcome that we are worried about. I've reproduced uh, one of Bostrom's central figures here. You can see a risk scope on the vertical axis. That is, here we ask how many individuals would be negatively affected if the risk were realized. Is it just a small number of individuals? Is it everyone in a particular region or even everyone alive on Earth? Or in the worst case, everyone alive on Earth plus some of e or even all future generations? And the second relevant dimension is the severity. So here we ask for each individual that would be affected, how bad would the outcome be? For instance, consider a fatal car crash, the risk of a single fatal car crash. If this happened, this would be pretty bad. You could die, so it would have pretty high severity, but it would only have personal scope because in any single car crash, only a small number of individuals are affected. However, there are other risks which would have even worse severity, right? For instance, consider factory farming. We commonly believe that, for instance, the life of, say, chickens in battery cages is so bad that it would be better to not bring these chickens into existence in the first place, right? This is why we believe that it's a good thing that the, most of the food at this conference is vegan. Another way to look at this is that I guess some of you would think that the prospect of being tortured for the rest of your life probably would be even worse than a fatal car crash. So there can be risks which even worse severity than terminal risks such as a fatal car crash. And as risks are now risks which with respect to their severity are about as bad as factory farming and that they are about outcomes that would be even worse than non-existence, but would also have much greater scope than a car crash or even factory farming, and that they could potentially affect a very large number of beings for the entire far future across the whole universe. So this explains why, in the title of the talk, I claimed that S-risks are the worst existential risks. I said this because I just define them to be risks of outcomes which have the worst possible severity, and the worst possible scope. So one way to understand this and how they differ from other kinds of existential risk is to zoom in on the top right corner of the figure I showed before. This is the corner that shows existential risks. So these are risks that would at least affect everyone alive on Earth plus all future generations. So this is why Bostrom uh, called them risks of pan-generational scope and risks which would be at least what Bostrom called crushing. 
which we can roughly understand as removing everything that would be valuable for those individuals. And one central example of such existential risks are risks of extinction. And these are risks that have uh, received a lot of attention uh, in the EA community already, right? They are, they are, uh, they have pan-generational scope because they would affect everyone alive and would also remove the rest of the future. And they would be crushing because they would remove everything valuable. But S risks are another type of existential risk, which are also conceptually included in this concept of existential risk. They are risks that would be even worse than extinction because they contain a lot of things we disvalue, such as, for instance, intense involuntary suffering, and risks that would have even larger scope because they would affect a significant part of the universe. So you could think of the Black Mirror story from the beginning and imagine that Greta endures her solitary confinement for the rest of her life and that it's not only one upload, but a large population of such uploads across the universe. Or you could think of something like factory farming with a much, much larger scope, for some reason realized um, in many ways across the whole galaxy. So I have now explained what conceptually S-risks are. So they are risks of severe involuntary suffering on a cosmic scale, thereby exceeding the total amount of suffering we've seen on Earth so far. And this makes them a subclass of existential risk, but a distinct subclass from the more well-known extinction risks. So far, I've just defined some conceptual uh, term. I've called attention to some kind of possibility. But what may be more relevant is, as effective altruists, is reducing X risks, uh, S risks, something we can do, and if so, is it something we should do? And let's make sure that we understand this question correctly. Because all plausible ethical views agree that intense and voluntary suffering is a bad thing. So I hope we can all agree that reducing S-risk is a good thing. But of course, you're here because you're interested in effective altruism. That is, you just don't just want to know whether there is something good you can do. You're, we're interested in identifying the most good we can do, right? We realize that doing good has opportunity cost, and we really want to make sure to focus our time, focus our money on the most impact we can have. So the question here really is, and the question I'd like you to discuss is, can reducing S-risk meet this higher bar? For at least some of us, could it be the best use of your time or your money to invest this into reducing S-risk as opposed to doing other things that could be good in some sense? And this, of course, is a, it's a very challenging question, and I won't be able to conclusively and comprehensively answer that question today. And to illustrate just how complex this question is, and also to make really clear what kind of argument I'm not making here, I'll first introduce a flawed argument, an argument that doesn't work for focusing on reducing S-risk. So this argument will roughly go as follows. First premise, the best thing to do is preventing the worst risks. Second premise, well, S-risks by definition are the worst risk, so, conclusion, you may think the best thing to do is to prevent S-risk. 
Now, with respect to premise one, let's get one potential source of misunderstanding out of the way. One way to understand this first premise is that it could be a rock bottom feature of your, of your ethical worldview. So you could think whatever you expect to happen in the future, you have some specific additional ethical reasons to focus on preventing the worst case outcomes. Some kind of maximum principle or perhaps prioritarianism applied to the far future. This, however, is not the sense um, I'm going to talk about today. So if your ethical view contains some such principles, I think they give you additional reasons for focusing on S-Risk, but this is not what I'm going to talk about. What I'm going to talk about is that there are more criteria that are relevant for identifying the ethically optimal action than the two dimension of risks we have looked at so far. Right, so far, we've only looked at if a risk was realized, how bad would the outcome be in terms of its severity and its scope. And in this sense, S risks are the worst risks, but in this sense, I think premise one is not clearly true. Because when deciding what's the best thing to do, there are more criteria that are relevant. And many of you will be well familiar with those criteria because they are getting, they are rightly getting a lot of attention in the EA community. So in order to see is reducing S risk, the best thing we can do, we really need to look at how likely would it be that these S risks are realized? How easy is reducing them? In other words, how tractable is it? And how neglected is this endeavor? Are there already a lot of people or organizations uh, doing it? Um, how many attention is it already? How much attention is it already getting? Right, so these criteria clearly are relevant. Even if you are a prioritarian or whatever and think you have like a lot of reasons to focus on the worst outcomes, if for instance their probability was zero or there was absolutely nothing we could do to reduce them, um, it would make no sense to, to try to do it. So we need to say something about the probability, the tractability, and the neglectedness of these asterisks. And I'll offer some initial thoughts on these in um, the rest of the talk. What about the probability of these asterisks? What I'll argue for here is that asterisks are at least not much more unlikely than extinction risks from superintelligent AI, which are a class of risks at least some parts of the community um, take seriously and think we should do something about them. And I'll explain why I think this is true and will address two kinds of objections you may have. So reasons to think that these asterisks, in fact, are too unlikely to focus on them. The first objection could be that, well, these kind of asterisks, they are, they are just too, too absurd. It, we can't even send humans to Mars yet, so why should we worry about suffering on cosmic scales, you could think. And in fact, when I first encountered uh, related ideas, I had a similar uh, immediate uh, intuitive reaction that uh, this is a bit speculative, uh, maybe this is not something I should focus on. But I think um, we should really be careful to examine such intuitive intuitions because as many of you, um, I guess, are well aware, there is a large body of psychological research in the heuristics and biases approach that suggests that intuitive assessments of probability by humans are often driven by 
how easy it is for us to recall a prototypical example of the kind of scenarios we are considering. And for things that have never happened, for which there is no historical precedent, this leads to us intuitively, systematically underestimating their probability, known as the absurdity heuristics. So I think we shouldn't go with this intuitive reaction, but should rather really examine, okay, what can we say about the probability of these asterisks? And if we look at all of our best scientific theories and what the experts are saying about how the future um, could unfold, I think we can identify two not too implausible technological developments that may plausibly lead to the realization of asterisks. This is not to say that these are the only possibilities. There may be unknown unknowns, things we can't foresee yet that could also lead to such asterisks, but there are some, there are some known pathways that could get us into asterisk territory. And these two are artificial sentience and superintelligent AI. So artificial sentience simply refers to the idea that the capacity to have subjective, uh, subjective experience and in particular the capacity to suffer is in fact not limited in principle to biological animals, but that there could be novel kinds of beings, perhaps computer programs stored on silicon-based hardware about whose suffering we would also have reasons to care about. And while this isn't completely settled, in fact, few contemporary views in the philosophy of mind would say that artificial sentience is impossible in principle. So it seems to be a conceptual possibility we should be concerned about. Now, how likely is it that this will ever be realized? This may be less clear, but in fact, here as well, we can identify one technological pathway that may lead to artificial sentience, and this is the idea of whole brain emulation. Basically just understanding the human brain in sufficient detail so that we could build a functionally equivalent computer simulation of it. And for this technology, it's still not completely certain that we will be able to do it, but in fact, researchers have, look at, have looked at this and have outlined a quite detailed roadmap for this technology. So they've identified concrete milestones and remaining uncertainties and have concluded that this definitely seems to be something we should take into account when thinking about the future. So I'd argue there is a not too implausible technological possibility that we will get to artificial sentience. I won't say as much about the second development, superintelligent AI, because this is already getting a lot of attention in the EA community. If you aren't familiar with worries related to superintelligent AI, I um, recommend Nick Bostrom's excellent book, uh, Superintelligence. And I'll just add that <clears throat> superintelligent AI presumably could also unlock many more technological capabilities that we would need to get into asterisk territory. So for instance, the capacity to colonize space and spread out sentient beings into larger parts of the universe. This could conceivably be realized by um, superintelligent AI. And I'd also like to add that some scenarios in which the interaction between superintelligent AI and artificial sentience could lead to asterisk scenarios have been discussed by Bostrom in Superintelligent and other places uh, under the term mind crime. So this is something you could search for if you're interested in related ideas. 
So, in fact, if we look at what we can say about the future, I think it would be a mistake to say that asterisks are so unlikely that uh, we, we shouldn't care about them. But maybe you have now a different objection. So maybe you're convinced that, okay, in terms of the technological capabilities, we can't be sure that these asterisks are just too unlikely, but you may think, okay, vast amounts of suffering, this seems to be a pretty specific outcome, even if we have much greater technological capabilities, it seems unlikely that such an especially bad outcome will be realized. So you could think, after all, this would require some kind of evil agent, some kind of evil intent that actively tries to make sure that we get these vast amounts of suffering. And I think I agree that this seems to be pretty unlikely. But here again, after reflecting on this a little bit, I think we can see that this is only one and perhaps the most implausible route to get into asterisk territory. There also are two other routes, I'd like to argue. The first of these is asterisks could arise by accident. So one class of scenarios, um, how this could happen, could be the following. Imagine that the first artificially sentient beings we create aren't as highly developed as complete human minds, but perhaps more similar to non-human animals, in that we may create artificially sentient beings with the capacity to suffer, but with a limited capability to communicate with us and to signal that they are suffering. In an extreme case, we may create beings that are sentient, that can suffer, but whose suffering we overlook because there is no possibility of easy communication. A second scenario where asterisks could be realized without evil intent are the toy example is the toy example of a paperclip maximizer, which serves to illustrate the idea what would happen if we create a very powerful superintelligent AI that pursues some unrelated goal, a goal that's neither closely aligned with our values nor actively evil. And as Nick Bostrom and many people have argued, conceivably such a paperclip maximizer could lead to human extinction, for instance, because it would convert the whole earth and all the matter around here into paperclips, because it wants just wants to maximize the number of paperclips and has no regard for, for human survival. But it's only a small further step to worry, well, what if such a paperclip maximizer runs, for instance, sentient simulations, say, for scientific purposes to better understand how to maximize paperclip production, or maybe similar to the way that our suffering serves some kind of evolutionary function, maybe a paperclip maximizer would create some kind of artificially sentient sub-programs or workers whose suffering would be instrumentally useful for maximizing the production of paperclips. So, we only need to add very few additional examples um, assumptions to see that scenarios which are already getting a lot of attention could not only lead to human extinction but affect to outcomes that would be even worse. Finally, to understand the significance of the third route, um, asterisk could be realized as part of a conflict. Note that it's often the case then uh, that if we have a large number of agents competing, uh, competing for a shared pie of resources, uh, 
that this can incentivize negative sum dynamics that lead to very bad outcomes, even if none of the agents involved actually actively values those bad outcomes. They are just resorting to them in order to outcompete the other agents. For instance, look at most wars. The countries waging them are rarely intrinsically valuing the suffering and the bloodshed uh, implicated in them. But sometimes wars still happen to further the strategic interests of the countries involved. So I think if we critically examine the situation we are in, we should conclude that, in fact, if we take seriously a lot of the con some considerations that are already being widely discussed in the community, such as risks on superintelligent AI, there are only few additional assumptions we need to justify worries about SRIS. And it's not like we need to invent some completely made-up technologies or need to assume extremely implausible or rare motivations such as sadism or hatred to substantiate worries about S-risks. So this is why I've said that I think S-risks are at least not much more unlikely than, say, extinction risks from superintelligent AI. Now, of course, the probability of S-risks isn't the only criterion we need to address. As I said, we, all, we also need to ask how easy is it to reduce those S-risks? And in fact, I think this is a pretty challenging uh, task. It's, um, we haven't found any kind of silver bullet yet here. But um, I'd also like to argue that reducing S-risk is at least minimally tractable even today. And one reason for this is that we're arguably already reducing S-risk. So as I just said, um, some scenarios how S-Risk could be realized are superintelligent AI goes wrong in some way. So this is why some work in technical AI safety as well as AI policy probably already effectively reduces S-Risk. So to give you one example, I said that we might be worried about S-Risks arising because of the strategic behavior of, say, AI agents as part uh, of a conflict. So some work in AI policy that reduces the likelihood of such multipolar AI scenarios and makes unipolar AI scenarios with less competition more likely could in particular have the effect of reducing S-risk. Similar with some work in technical AI safety. That being said, it seems to me that a lot of the interventions that are currently undertaken reduce S-risk by accident in a sense. They aren't specifically tailored to reducing S-risk. And there may well be particular, say, sub-problems within technical AI safety that would be particularly effective at reducing S-risk specifically and which aren't getting a lot of attention already. So for instance, to give you one toy example that's probably hard to realize in precisely this form but illustrates what might be possible, consider the idea of achieving the goal of conditional on AI being uncontrolled, conditional on our efforts on solving the control problem failing, making sure that in such a scenario, AI at least doesn't create, say, additional sentient simulations or artificially sentient sub-programs. If we could solve this problem through work in technical AI safety, we would arguably reduce S-risks specifically. 
Of course, there also are more broad interventions that don't directly aim to influence um, some kinds of levers that directly affect the far future, but would have a more indirect effect on reducing S-risk. So, for instance, we could think that strengthening international cooperation will enable us to, at some point, um, for instance, prevent AI arms races that could, again, lead to negative sum dynamics that could lead us into S-risk territory. Similarly, because artificial sentience is such a significant worry when thinking about S-risks, we could think that expanding the moral circle and making it more likely that human decision makers in the future would care about artificially sentient beings, that this would have a positive effect on reducing S-risk. That all being said, I think it's fair to say that we currently don't understand very well how best to reduce S-risk. So one thing we could do if we suspect that um, there are some low-hanging fruits to reap there, we could say, okay, let's go meta and do research about how best to reduce those S-risks. And in fact, this is um, a large part of what we are doing at the Foundational Research Institute. Now, there's also another aspect of tractability I'd like to talk about. This is not the question, how easy is it intrinsically to reduce S-risk, but the question, could we raise the required support? So, for instance, can we get sufficient funding to get work on reducing S-risk off the ground? And one worry we may have here is that, well, all these talk about suffering on a cosmic scale and so on, this will seem too unlikely to many people. In other words, that S-risks are just too weird a concern for us to be able to raise uh, significant support and funding to reduce them. And I think this is, to some extent, a legitimate worry, but I also don't think that we should be too pessimistic. And I think the history of the AI safety field um, substantiates uh, this assessment. If you think back even 10 years ago, um, you will find that back then worries about extinction risk from superintelligent AI were ridiculed, dismissed, or misrepresented and misunderstood as, for instance, being about the Terminator or anything, um, something like that. Today, we have Bill Gates blurbing a book, talking openly and directly about these risks from superintelligent AI and also related concepts such as mind crime. And so I would argue that the recent history of the AI safety field provides some reason for hope that we are able to push even seemingly weird cause areas sufficiently far into the mainstream, into the window of acceptable discourse that we can raise significant support for them. Last but not least, what about the neglectedness of S-Risk? So as I said, some work that's already underway in the X-Risk area arguably reduces S-Risk. So reducing S-Risk is not totally neglected. But I think it's fair to say that they, are, get much they, they get much less attention than, say, extinction risk. In fact, I've sometimes seen people in the community either explicitly or implicitly equate existential risk and extinction risk, which conceptually clearly seems to be untrue. And in fact, while some existing interventions may be also effective at reducing S-risks, there are a few people that are 
specifically trying to identify interventions that are most effective at reducing S-risk specifically. And I think the Foundational Research Institute is the only EA organization which at an, at an organizational level um, has the mission of focusing on reducing S-risk. So to summarize, I haven't conclusively answered the question for who exactly reducing S-risk is the best thing to do. I think this depends both on your ethical view and on some empirical questions, such as the probability, the tractability, and the neglectedness of S-risk. But I have argued S-risks are not much more unlikely than, say, extinction risk from superintelligent AI, and so they warrant at least some attention. And I've argued that the most plausible known path that could lead us into S-risk territory, so aside from unknown unknowns, are... AI scenarios that involve the creation of large numbers of artificially sentient beings. And this is why I think among the currently known sources of existential risk, the AI risk cost area is unique in also being very relevant for reducing S-risk. Because if we don't get AI right, there seems to be a significant chance that we get into S-risk territory, whereas in other areas, say an asteroid hitting Earth or a deadly pandemic or wiping out uh, human life, it seems much less likely that this could get us into scenarios that would be much, much worse than extinction because they, in addition, contain a lot of suffering. So in this sense, um, if you haven't considered S-risks before, I think this is an update for caring more about the AI risk cause area as opposed to other X-risk cause areas. So in this sense, some but not all of the current work in the X-risk area is already effective at reducing S-risk, but there seems to be a gap of people and research specifically optimizing for reducing S-risk and trying to find those interventions that are most effective for this particular goal. And so I'd argue in some that the Foundational Research Institute, in having this unique focus, uh, occupies an important niche, and I would very much like to see uh, more people join us in that niche, niche. So people from, say, other organizations also doing some kind of research that's um, hopefully effective at reducing S-risk. So this all being said, I hope to have raised some awareness for the worrying prospect of S-risks. I don't think I have convinced all of you that reducing S-risk is the best use of your resources. I don't think I could expect this, both because our rock-bottom ethical views differ to some extent and also because the empirical questions involved are just extremely complex and it seems very hard to reach agreement on them. So I think realistically, those of us who are interested in shaping the far future, who are convinced that this is the most important thing to do. Among those of us, we will be faced with a situation where there are people with different priorities in the community and we need to sort out how to manage this situation. And this is why I'd like to end this talk with a vision for this far future shaping community. So shaping the far future as a metaphor could be seen as being involved in like a long journey. 
But what I hope I have made clear is that it's a misrepresentation to frame this journey as involving a binary choice between extinction or utopia. In another sense, however, I'd argue that this metaphor was apt. We do face a long journey, but it's a journey through hard to traverse territory. And on the horizon, there is a continuum ranging from a very bad thunderstorm to the most beautiful summer day. And interest in shaping the far future, in a sense, determines who is with us in the vehicle, but it doesn't necessarily comprehensively answer the question what more precisely to do with the steering wheel. Some of us are more worried about not getting into the thunderstorm. Others are more motivated by the existential hope of maybe arriving at that beautiful sunshine. And it seems hard to reach agreement on what more precisely to do. And part of the reasons is that it's very hard to keep track of the complicated networks of roads far ahead and to see steering in what directions will lead to precisely what outcome. So this is very hard. By contrast, we have an easy time seeing who else is with us in the vehicle. And so the concluding thought I'd like to offer is maybe among the most important things we can do is to make sure to compare our maps among the people in the vehicle and to find some, some way of handling the remaining disagreements without inadvertently derailing the vehicle and getting to an outcome that's worse for all. Thank you. the iPad. So if you haven't already, feel free to submit questions on Bizabo or at boston.eaglobal.org slash polls. Um, I'll start off with a question that a, a few people were asking, which is uh, something that you said isn't necessary to be concerned with S-risks, but you know would help uh, shed a little bit of clarity, um, which is besides AI, um, besides, uh, you know, a whole brain emulation and, and you know, running uh, like uploaded brains, are there any other, uh, yeah, forms of an esque risk that you can like uh, try to visualize? Um, it, it, particularly people were trying to figure out ways in which you can work on the problem if you don't have a concrete sense of the way in which it might manifest. Mm -hmm. So... I do, in fact, think that artificial, the most plausible scenarios we can foresee today involve artificial sentience, partly because many people have talked about that it, um, artificial sentience would come with some novel challenges. For instance, it would presumably be very easy to spawn a large number of artificially sentient beings. There are a lot of efficiency advantages of silicon-based substrates as compared to biological substrates. And also, we can observe that in many other areas, the worst outcomes contain most of the expected value, like the predominance of fat-tailed distributions, for instance, um, with respect to the casualties in war or in diseases and so on. So it seems somewhat plausible to me that if we are concerned about reducing as much suffering as possible in expectation, we should focus on these very bad outcomes and that most of these, for various reasons, involve artificial sentience. That being said, I think there are some scenarios, especially 
um, in future scenarios where we don't have this archetypical intelligence explosion scenario and a hard takeoff where we are faced with a more messy and complex futures where there are maybe a lot of factions um, controlling AI and using that for various purposes that we could face risks that maybe aren't as, don't have as high a scope as the worst uh, scenarios involving artificial sentience, but would be maybe more akin to factory farming. So some kind of novel technology that would be misused in some way, maybe just because uh, people don't sufficiently care about the consequences and they pursue some kind of, say, e economic goals and, um, yeah, create, uh, inadvertently create large amounts of suffering similar to the way we can see this happening today in, for example, the, the animal industry. And uh, you said that the debate is still kind of out whether or not you could actually have uh, extend your moral concern to something that's in a, you know, a silicon substrate that isn't uh, flesh and bone in the way that we are. Uh, can you make the case for why we might, in fact, care about something that, you know, is, is an uploaded brain and isn't a brain in the way that we generally think of it? Mm -hmm. So um, one suggestive thought experiment uh, that has been uh, discussed in the philosophy of mind is imagine that you replace your brain not all at once, but step by step with uh, silicon-based hardware. So you start with replacing just one neuron with some kind of chip that serves the same function. It seems intuitively clear that this doesn't make you less sentient or that we should care less about you in that way. And now you can, re uh, you can imagine step by step replacing your brain one urine at a time with a computer in some sense. And it seems that you have a hard time pinpointing any particular point in this transition where you say, oh well, now uh, the situation flips and we should stop caring about um, the same, after all, the same information processing that's still going on in that brain. And yeah, but but there are there are there is a large body of of literature and the philosophy of mind uh, discussing this this question. And um, assuming that uh, these brains do in fact have the capacity to suffer, uh, what reason would we have to think that uh, it would be advantageous, say, for an, uh, a super intelligence to uh, emulate lots of brains in a, a way in which they suffer, rather than just have them, uh, you know, exist without any sort of positive or negative feeling? So um, one reason we may be worried is that if we look at the current successes in the AI field, we see that they are often driven by machine learning techniques. That is, techniques where we don't program the, the knowledge and the capabilities we think the AI system should have directly into the system, but rather set up some kind of algorithm that can be trained and that can learn via trial and error, receiving some information about how good or bad it's doing and thereby increasing its capabilities. Now, it seems very unlikely that the current machine learning uh, techniques that involve giving some kind of reward signals to algorithms um, are should be should be concerning uh, to us to a large extent. So I don't want to claim that current, say, reinforcement learning algorithms um, are suffering to a large extent. But we may be worried that similar architectures where 
the capabilities of artificially sentient beings arise by them being trained in some sense, receiving some kind of reward signal um, that this is a feature of AI systems that will persist even at a point when the sentience of these algorithms is realized to a larger extent. So in some way, this is similar to the way, uh, as I mentioned, our suffering serves some kind of evolutionary function. It helps us navigating in the world. And in fact, people who don't feel pain um, have a great deal of, of difficulties for this reason because um, they, they don't intuitively avoid um, damaging uh, outcomes. Right. And, um, yeah, so this is certainly a, a longer discussion, but I, I hope you can give a brief answer to this one. Um, a couple of people also wanted to know, um, uh, you have a particular suffering focus in the case of SRISC, um, but some people wonder that perhaps an agent might actually just prefer, um, it, it's not clear whether they would prefer death or suffering. They might actually prefer to exist, um, even if their experiences are pretty negative. Um, is this a choice that uh, you would be making on behalf of the, the the agents that you're considering in your moral realm when you're trying to mitigate an S-risk? Is this uh, a necessary precondition for caring about S-risks? So I think whatever your um, rock-bottom ethical views, there nearly always are prudential reasons for considering the preferences of other agents. So if I was faced with a situation where I think, oh, there is like some kind of being whose experiences are so negative that I think in a consequentialist sense, it would be better that this being doesn't exist, but this being has for whatever reason a strong preference uh, to exist and then argues with me, oh, well, um, should I continue or not, and so on and so forth. I think there often can be uh, prudential reasons to take these uh, preferences into account. So... I think actually there will be some kind of convergence between different ethical views on the question of how to take such hypothetical preferences into account. That being said, I think it's fairly implausible to claim that no imaginable amount of suffering uh, would be would be intrinsically uh, worse than than non-existence. That this seems fairly implausible to me. So one intuition pump for this could be. Um, if you face the choice between one hour of sleep or one hour of torture, what do you prefer? Um, it seems fairly clear, um, I would guess, to most of us that one hour of sleep, having no experience at all, is, uh, is the better choice in the sense. And uh, you, you said that hopefully we'll come to some sort of convergence on what you know the the true moral philosophy, insofar as there is one, um, is. But uh, th there might also be reason to think that we wouldn't do this in the timescales of uh, you know the development of a super intelligent AI or um, the development of whole brain emulations that we can run on many computers. Um, what do we do in that case where we haven't solved moral philosophy in time? Yeah, so uh, that, that I think is a, is a very important question because to me it seems to be fairly likely, um, that there won't be such, uh, convergence at least to a, to a large uh, extent of detail. So I think for a while we will be stuck with a community where there are some normative uh, disagreements no matter how hard we try to resolve them. And so I think in addition to maybe continuing to discuss various questions and seeing whether we can reach more convergence, we need to set up some kind of governance or cooperation structures 
perhaps in some way similar to the way that um, modern democracies uh, serve the function of enabling a plurality of views to coexist in a peaceful way. We need to yeah, find, find some kind of constructive, cooperative ways of handling remaining disagreements that don't lead to negative sum dynamics, but that instead enable us to agree on win-win compromises and where no party does something that disproportionately harms uh, the other parties. Right. And uh, to wrap this up, if people are interested in working on that, the, you know, that very difficult moral compromise question or uh, specifically trying to ad address uh, sources of S risks, is this something that they can do at FRI? How would you recommend that they move forward? So, yeah, I uh, invite all of you to uh, check out our website, to check out our research, and uh, to get in touch with me uh, by email or, or on Facebook or talking to me. I will also have office hours at 2 p.m. after lunch and um, to see whether you could either contribute to our research, maybe contribute to the research at other groups um, that I think are doing good work on reducing S-risk, uh, could fund us or... Um, help uh, reducing S risk in, uh, in various other ways. Thanks so much. Really appreciated your talk. <laughs>